Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we are so excited to welcome on the show a guest. We cannot believe who we were able to talk to, Dr. David Redwine, <laughs> our hero, oh my God. an endometriosis legend, one of the most incredible excision surgeons and researchers in the history of endometriosis. Ooh, gosh, this is such oh, a wow. warm welcome. It sounds like it's a movie trailer. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a warm welcome that he most certainly deserves. He deserves it. <laughs> We are so thrilled that Dr. David Redwine, who we talk about so much on this podcast because his research has been so influential and so important within the endometriosis community, he so graciously agreed to come on the podcast. And so this week we have part one with Dr. Redwine. And since we had so much to talk about with endometriosis, building on his decades of knowledge, we also have next week part two. So a little bit about Dr. David Redwine. His work is on the website endopedia.info. So if you have not checked that out yet, we highly, highly recommend checking out that website. His work, his knowledge, his research, his expertise has been vital to the endometriosis community. He has helped empower and educate both patients and physicians alike. His groundbreaking ideas have helped shape the way that we think about endometriosis. And he presented his theory of origin of endometriosis called malariosis, which is that endometriosis has an embryonic origin, and he has presented his theory around the world. Dr. David Redwine, together with Nancy Peterson, who is a nurse and the founder of the website and Facebook group Nancy's Nook, which is definitely worth checking out if you have a not already. wonderful resource. Together, they founded the Oregon Institute of Endometriosis in 1987. By 1988, he was receiving such a volume of endometriosis patients that he decided to give up his obstetrics practice altogether in order to fully focus on treating people with endo. The Institute went on to receive worldwide acclaim. During his career, Dr. Redwine has published over 110 articles, monographs, editorial letters, book chapters, and full books. He served on the editorial board for numerous scientific journals and was elected to various positions of responsibility on the boards of national and international laparoscopic and gynecologic organizations. He presented his work all around the globe and during his travels was invited to perform excision surgery on some of the most challenging and complex cases of the disease. He also regularly received visiting surgeons at his practice in Bend, Oregon, who came from far and wide to watch and learn from his excision surgery techniques. Dr. Redwine is an endometriosis legend, and Brittany and I are still pinching ourselves that we could get him on the show. <laughs>
It was such an honor to ask him questions and have him share his 35-plus years of knowledge on endometriosis, along with his research, his theories, his expertise in excision surgery. So thank you so much, Dr. Redwine, for joining us today. And everyone, let's welcome him to the show. Hi, Dr. Redwine. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. We know your time is really valuable. We've already introduced you, my co-host and I, at the beginning of the episode. I've given a long introduction to all of your experience and writings and publications that you've done. And so we are just so thrilled to have you here with all of your knowledge and all of your expertise. And I know I've mentioned to you before, but me and so many of the listeners consult endopedia.info a lot. I mean, I think I consult it so much, I practically have it memorized at this point. So for you to be here and to talk to us, the legend of endometriosis, excision surgery, malariosis, it is such an honor to have you here today. So welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me and it's a pleasure to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself really quick? I mean, we gave a pretty long introduction, like paragraphs and paragraphs, but if you'd like to introduce yourself in in your own way. Well, apparently everybody knows that I'm David Redwine. I know that myself to be a fact. I'm a retired uh, general gynecologist. I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, went to Stanford for college, went to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston for medical school. Uh, went to the University of Oregon Health Sciences Center in Portland for internship and residency, and went from residency when I was going to get my first job. I realized, having lived in all these large cities, that it would be a 30 to 45 minute commute one way from wherever I might live to a medical center. And so I sat down and added up how much time I would spend in a car over the course of a 35 or 40 year career. And it was astounding. It was two full years, 24 seven, 365 times two. And so I said, well, that pretty well uh, settles it. I've got to go to a small town. So uh, I went to Bend, Oregon, which uh, at that time had 15,000 people. Spoiler alert, the longest commute I ever had was 11 minutes. You know, uh, the shortest was like five. So. At the start of my career, it was five. At the end of my career, it was 11 minutes. So, you know, I I think that's important in many ways because it gave me the time, the extra time, literally, that I needed to devote to examining endometriosis in ways that were interesting to me and seemed important to me. So I went to a time machine when I moved to Bend. I, I got two extra years. And I hope my work in endometriosis is, you know, some evidence that those were two years well spent. That's amazing. I think so many of us, all we want is more time. And that's really lovely that you could realize that opportunity and then not only get your time back, but make actual good use of it too. Yeah, it was a win-win situation. Truly. So I'm going to start with the first question. Let's jump right in. Many of the listeners are familiar with Samson's theory of endometriosis origin, which says that endometriosis is from retrograde menstruation. And just as a recap, this is when menstrual blood leaks out of the fallopian tubes into the pelvic cavity. And according to this theory, this blood then attaches where it lands, 
So that could be the ovary, the surface of the uterus, the pelvic sidewall, et cetera. And then it becomes endometriosis. This theory is very popular among gynecologists today, but yet it is 100 years old. It has never been proven. It is full of holes, making it very unlikely that it will ever be proven. My question to you is that you have called Samson's theory the most dangerous theory in the history of medicine, which are some pretty strong words. And I'd love to find out why you said that. Well, you know, I'm kind of a simple person. I didn't have any special training in, you know, statistics and all that, but I did learn arithmetic in school. And when you look back on it over the last century of that theory, it has led to two or three or four main kind of classes of treatment. Removal of the uterus to stop reflux menstruation. Removal of the uterus tubes and ovaries to stop reflux menstruation and also stop estrogen stimulation you know, of, of any endometriosis that remains. And keep the patient off estrogen you know, because that starves the endometriosis although we know it can make its own estrogen, so it doesn't care what we're doing with our estrogen. For those reasons, you know, those are some big things, you know, hysterectomy, castration, you know, maintenance on some kind of long-term medical therapy. And all of these stem fairly directly from Samson's theory of reflux menstruation because it's centered around the uterus. When you consider that, you know, it's said that up to 10% of women have endometriosis, 10% of people have endometriosis. Since, you know, 1923, when Samson proposed this theory, there have been countless women who have had menstrual flows and they've had countless menstrual flows and they've had, you know, countless, you know, numbers of red blood cells and endometrial tissue and all kinds of stuff, you know, falling off the inner lining. And some of that is supposed to go out and reverse through the fallopian tubes, you know, to drip out the end and fall like seeds upon fertile soil to attach the surfaces and then to proliferate and invade those surfaces, you know, and then, you know, become endometriosis, you know, kind of, you know, attach, proliferate and invade. Okay. And now we've got endometriosis. So we can see the spikes on coronavirus very clearly. You see that on TV all the time. A spike on a coronavirus is infinitesimally small compared to even one reflux cell. Why is it that since 1923, with all the surgeries that have been done, all the biopsies that have been taken, you know, all the research specific for endometriosis, why is it that we still don't have robust evidence of initial attachment, proliferation, and invasion. We've got plenty of pictures of endometriosis, but those first two steps are missing. They should be everywhere. Millions, if not billions of people have been affected directly by endometriosis over the last century, and a good fraction of those have been affected by some kind of crazy treatment related to Samson's theory. Therefore, if that theory is wrong, that means that take a number out of the air, hundreds of millions, perhaps more, perhaps you know, billions of people have been 
treated incorrectly on the basis of a theory that should have been proven 100 years ago, but which is still escaping detection today. This is not okay. I mean, this, this is something that is easy to prove. You don't need an electron microscope. You just had to do a light microscopy examination. And this should be like rain pelting the surface you know, of a pavement. It should be everywhere, all, all stages, you know, in the same pelvis. And our textbooks should be filled with photomicrographs, you know, demonstrating all of these important steps. And they're absent. And the reason they're absent is because Samson's theory isn't where endometriosis comes from. It was an honest effort, you know, 100 years ago, but we know a lot more about endometriosis now than Dr. Sampson did when he proposed that theory. And I don't think he would propose that theory today, you know, if he knew what we know about endometriosis now. So when you consider that, conservatively speaking, hundreds of millions over the last century have been mistreated on the basis of a theory which should have been easily proven a century ago, but which still escapes proof now, what theory in medicine can possibly say that? None. None. I mean, it, it's astounding. I think it's what you said about, you know, hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of people getting this quote unquote treatment based on the idea of Samson's theory, the idea that endometriosis comes from the uterus, unfortunate removal of the uterus that was perhaps unnecessary going on medicines like Lupron or Lissa, long-term birth control, things that are managing symptoms are not actually managing the disease itself. And this is undoubtedly resulting in the prolongation of symptoms that not getting proper treatment for endometriosis, removal of the disease. So I definitely agree with you that this is an extraordinarily dangerous theory because what it does is it basically results in direct suffering for the patients. Well, true, but you know what else it does? It's dragging science through the mud. It is dragging medical science through the mud. It's like we have all these ways to prove things, you know, and the proof of reflux menstruation as the origin of endometriosis would require just simple, regular light microscopy to prove it or not. For 30, 40 years, I've traveled the world asking people, okay, you know, this theory, everybody talks about it, but where's the proof? Where are the pictures? You know, and they say, they make excuses like, oh, what happens too fast? You know, the endometriosis, you know, the endometrium comes out, the envelope tube and bam, it hits the peritoneum and then bam, it's through, you know, and it, it, oh, it occurs, but it's too quick to see. You know, other people might say, well, the endometrial fragments potentially are photophobic. That means they don't like light. Okay, for us as surgeons to get information about something, we've got to have light inside the abdomen, whether it's laparoscopy or laparotomy. So we have to have lights. And so if the endometrial tissue fragments are photophobic, then when the light comes in at surgery, they flee and you know they, they go high. And then when the surgery is over and the light is gone, these cells come back, you know, and that's why they're not detected, is because. They're really there, but we're just not finding them for, you know, various reasons that don't make any sense at all. So, you know, the, the point is, I've never gotten a straight answer from anybody who calls himself a scientist, you know, regarding 
where's this evidence? And so my first two publications convinced me, the information in those publications convinced me that Samson's theory couldn't be true. Because one of the things that, if you think about Samson's theory, like dandelions seeding a pasture, after a week, there's more of the pasture. After a month, more of the pasture. After, you know, whatever the whole pasture is done, you know, involved by dandelions. Same thing with endometriosis. Here's the endometrial fragments coming out the end of the fallopian tubes. They collect in the pelvis and establish endometriosis. Next month, here comes some more fragments come out and establish more endometriosis. You know, more endometriosis, more endometriosis. And so what you would see is what you see with every other disease in the human body that is progressive. Older age groups have more of it and they have more severe of it. It works with facial wrinkles. It works with obesity. It works with coronary artery disease. And I'm sorry, it has to work with endometriosis also. If you've got this monthly regurgitation and seeding, older age groups have to have more disease. Well, how is disease measured? Well, it was not measured very well when I started publications. And so the revised American Fertility Society classification system was and still is in use, but it's very crude. It, it was developed primarily for infertility. It focuses on the ovaries primarily. Most of its points score for scar tissue rather than endometriosis. And the peritoneum, where endometriosis is most commonly found, only gets six out of about 140 points. So it's very crude, very nondescript, nonspecific. So I decided I would develop a, a simple pelvic mapping system where here's a pelvis in the anatomic textbook. It's, everything has a name. Okay, I'll just, you know, bladder, peritoneum in front. Okay, I put a little cell in the computer database for bladder right uterocycle ligament, left uterocycle ligament, cul-de-sac, right ovary, left ovary, sigmoid colon, cecum colon. So it's just a simple tabulation system of things by anatomic mapping of what was involved by biopsy-proven endometriosis. It was the simplest and most accurate representation of amount of disease that I could come up with. And certainly it should be able to discriminate the kind of dandelion spread that occurs in a pasture. So what I found is that looking at age groups from teenagers to patients in their 50s and 60s, looking at the areas of the pelvis that were most commonly involved by endometriosis, in all of those areas, older patients didn't have more disease than younger patients. In fact, they had less, a little bit less disease. So the dandelion spread that's predicted by Samson's theory, I couldn't find any evidence of it in about 130 some odd patients that compose that publication. The other publication, I guess my second publication, I made a very simple color classification system for what does most of the endometriosis in this pelvis look like? What color is it? Is it colorless? clear? Is it most of it red? Is most of it black? Is most of it whatever? Very crude, you know, color classification schemes. But I did this on patients. And when I sat down to look at that data, I found that patients who were teenagers had 
very subtle, often clear, colorless lesions, whereas patients in their 30s and 40s more often had you know, black, classic powder burn endometriosis type lesions. And at the time, the classic black powder burn lesion of endometriosis was the predominant visual appearance of the disease that you read about in every textbook. But when I just sat down and did the simple arithmetic of, well, okay, yeah, I had some patients, older patients who had typical black powder burn uh, disease. But look at all these other patients, these younger patients, you know, they didn't have it. They had other forms of it, and it looks like it's changing in color as time goes by. You know, it goes from colorless, some red, some white fibrosis. You know, the old bleeding gets trapped behind the fibrosis, so it looks dark. So I documented in a crude way the age-related evolution and color appearance of endometriosis from very subtle to very obvious. And so that told me that if physicians, if surgeons looking into the pelvis to investigate endometriosis, if they weren't aware of all these subtle lesions and were looking only for the classic textbook lesions, they would completely miss the diagnosis in over half their patients. And they would misdiagnose the extent of the disease in you know, perhaps 75% of patients. You know, this was very important information because it also, by a backdoor route, gave some theoretical support to Samson's theory because people could go in and they'd say, you know, okay, I'm looking in the pelvis of a teenager for pelvic pain. I see nothing. When really colorless lesions were already there, the patient continues to hurt. Patient comes back from another laparoscopy four years later. Oh, I now see endometriosis. You know, it was not there before. You had reflux menstruation. It's there now. Therefore, your case proves Samson's theory. People would take that when they miss the early stages of the disease, because it, it can be so subtle, they would presume that you know the patient had new disease or recurrent disease instead of this disease was there. It just was very subtle. You missed it and it changes in appearance over time, but that gives a kind of a false impression of what the disease is really doing. The other thing that that would tell somebody is, well, this is geographically spreading, you know, because the teenager had, you know, no disease. The patient in her you know, mid-20s had, you know, a little more disease. The patient in her 30s, you know, look, now she's got all this scar tissue. So that was important uh, for my understanding of the disease because it told me that Samson's theory isn't the cause of endometriosis. We would know that for sure by now. We had a reason for, you know, why endometriosis could escape detection, so to speak, because it's very subtle. Anyway, I, you know, I came to the realization that Samson's theory wasn't the origin. So the most likely thing was that it was embryonic in origin. We already knew way back when that there was some hereditary tendencies for endometriosis to run in families not to the extent of the detailed genetic information that we have now. This is just kind of pedigrees uh, more than genomics. So it, it you know, became apparent that, well, if endometriosis does occur as kind of a genetic birth defect that forms during embryonic life, 
then you should be able to find evidence of it in young age groups. You know, patients before they start having menstrual flows. And one of my publications, the Mulariosis publication, I describe in there a little study that uh, I did where I got eight or nine autopsy specimens from the pelvis of infants that had died of sudden infant death syndrome. In one of those, I think it was one out of eight, that'd be 12.5%, I found what looked like endometriosis of the cul-de-sac. The cul-de-sac, my pelvic mapping told me it was the most common area of occurrence in the pelvis. And so in a sense, it's not surprising that you know it might be found in the cul-de-sac. So I published it, I published a slide uh, of, of the microscopic findings. What is fetal endometriosis supposed to look like? I mean, you know, people thought they were kind of in two camps. They would say, gosh, you know, this is crazy, uh, you know, because it's against Samson's theory. And other people would say, hmm, we can't ignore this evidence. So since then, of course, there's all kinds of evidence of cases of fetal endometriosis. So the question is much more subtle now than it's ever been. The genetic studies that have been done and are likely going on even as we speak are gonna shed even more light on the genetics of the disease. Surgeons are gonna be taking the disease out in order to treat the endometriosis. Some will go to the pathologist, some will go to the geneticist who will then look at the tissue genomics going on in each anatomic area of the pelvis and relate it back you know, to the human genome. So we'll know exactly where endometriosis came from. Therefore, we'll be able to predict from somebody's genome whether they're gonna have endometriosis or not. And not only that, but whether it's gonna be a severe case and possibly even where it might be located. Now, mulariosis is just kind of an overarching term. The suffix osis, in medicine means there's a problem with something, you know, having a problem or causing a problem. So mulariosis, the word derives from mullerian ducts, which are the embryonic structures that come together and fuse in midline to form the uterus and, you know, the fallopian tubes and all that. You know, it occurred to me uh, as a gynecologist that, okay, you got endometriosis, but then you got endometriosis with fibroids. And then you got some in some fibroids that have endometriosis in the very center. Then you got adenomyosis, and then you got endocervicosis, and then you know, so endometriosis by itself, uh, yeah, it could occur by itself, but it often had all these running partners that would go along with it. And so it became clear to me that looking only at endometriosis and ignoring these other related conditions, because they also come from the malaria duct then it has a kind of a higher world view, so to speak. It's not endometriosis, it's something wrong with the endometrium. It's mullariosis, something wrong with the entire mullarian duct system. Maybe not much in some patients, maybe a whole lot in others, various combinations, but it's all related to genetics. So there's going to be more and more genetic information that's gonna come out and I've talked about what I call the uh, mullariotic gene ensemble, which basically is just like a basket, you know, 
any gene that is studied that comes along that is related strongly or even weakly to endometriosis goes into that basket. You know, it'll be sorted out later by people smarter than us. And so the basket is already big and growing with a bunch of genes and more will be put in, you know, and the inevitable thing, of course, is that, you know, it'll be shown how things relate, how all these gynecological processes relate to some uh, shared derangement of development and differentiation and migration of the mesoderm during embryogenesis. So that's meliosis in a nutshell. There'll be an examination in the morning. I'm going to pass the exam. I'm sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gave a really great overview and explanation of a lot of things I was actually going to ask you, such as the pelvic mapping studies that you did and the, the evolution of the visual appearance of endometriosis. I do want to talk about excision and treatment, but since you were just talking about genes and the gene basket, I'm just going to push forward this question that I had for a bit later. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the future of endometriosis treatment? I've heard you say before that you think gene therapy is going to play a role in endometriosis treatment in the future. Can you explain what you mean by that or what you're envisioning? I don't know what I mean because (laughs) it hasn't been invented yet, you know, but geneticists can be very curious and very clever. From what we were just discussing about, you know, how all these diseases seem to be related genetically in some fashion. Theoretically, in the future, we would know enough and have the technology to kind of begin to unravel those genetic relationships. The problem is, is that the gene basket is already quite full. The genes have multiple you know, interactions with other genes, not only other genes in the same basket, but genes elsewhere on the genome. And so in one or two generations of you know, looking, it becomes extremely complex. And I don't know what the future holds in terms of gene therapy. Presumably somebody at some point will be able to figure out how to unravel hundreds and hundreds of genes, each having a little tiny incremental effect, but resulting in endometriosis. So I don't want to say that it's impossible, but it's not going to be very soon because it's clear that the genetics involved are so complex that nobody can envision you know, how it would be done. In the meantime, we need to look for the treatment that has the best chance of eliminating all disease, whether it's superficial or deep. And medical therapy is not part of that answer because everyone knows that medical therapy does not treat endometriosis. It treats the symptoms of endometriosis. Going to have to stop you there. I don't think that everyone knows. I'm pretty sure some of my previous doctors didn't know that. And they thought that things like Lupron were just going to clean up my pelvis. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone knowledgeable knows, but. (laughs) My point in saying everyone knows is that (laughs) everyone should know. Agreed. And if somebody says, well, not everybody knows, I don't know. Then Then the question is, well, why don't you know? You know, are you a gynecologist or an imposter? If so, we need to call 911. Someone's impersonating a doctor. (laughs) Uh, 
I wanted to ask you about the mesoderm. Sticking for a minute about the theory of malariosis and the embryonic origin of endometriosis. As you know, endometriosis has been found in some pretty weird locations of the body, such as the fingertip and the eyelid, for example, the butt cheek. So can you explain to us how this would make sense in terms of malariosis? Because I know that you mentioned the mesoderm, but can you go a bit further on that for us? For yeah. the what is yeah. mesoderm and how could end yeah. up found in those spots? Yeah, you know, the, I think the question you're asking is, okay, malariosis kind of makes overall sense, but how does it occur embryologically? What actually is going on at the level of the embryo that results in this? And so everybody knows about fertilization, the egg and the sperm get together, egg starts dividing and all of that. During embryonic formation, there are three embryonic layers that are formed. And if you think of the developing embryo as ravioli, a piece of ravioli, the stuffed ravioli. That's, um, is that what I'm talking about? A little ravioli with, you know, it's kind of square and got crimped edges and meat or something in the middle. Okay. That ravioli represents the three embryonic layers. The top layer that's looking at you is the ectoderm. And that's going to form the central nervous system and the skin. The bottom of the ravioli is the endoderm, and that is gonna form the lining of the gut and of the urinary system. The meat in the middle of those two layers is the mesoderm, and the mesoderm forms everything else. So when you, you know, look at endometriosis anywhere in the body, endometriosis, is mesoderm. It's not central nervous system. It's not skin. It's not GI mucosa. And it's not GU mucosa. Therefore, it's mesoderm because most of our bodies are mesoderm. So endometriosis is mesoderm. The question is, since mesoderm is all over the body, why did mother nature do something that makes somebody's body almost resemble a salmon spawning bed. Do you know how salmon spawn? They go up river and they have little gravel beds, you know, kind of around the river systems. You know, it's almost as if patients with endometriosis have, you know, been peppered throughout their body with tissue that's normally used for reproduction. So, is endometriosis something that is a holdover from some kind of paleological time of reproduction survivability, you know, uh, reproductive advantage? Uh, you know, I mean, but that, you know, in a sense, that's, that's almost what endometriosis is like. Why is the tissue that resembles the tissue the embryo develops in, why is it all over the body? I mean, it's crazy. When you think about it, it's crazy. What does it say about our past? Where we all fish at once, I don't know, but you know that's one of the crazy things when I think about it is the resemblance, you know, between that and salmon. I know it's kind of a crazy thing, but it, I think it's apt. You know, it's interesting when you put it that <laughs> way. It does make you ponder: why is it that the malarian duct cells have 
in the cases of endometriosis have this trouble getting to the spot where they're supposed to be? Why are they going to the lung, going to the eyelid and during right. embryonic origin? How come other, like, how come I don't have like 20, you know, big toes, one right. on my forehead and or, one you know, on or, my nose? Or splenic tissue, you know, kind of over there instead of over here. Well, and the answer is, is that there is some of that other stuff that occurs. In fact, in my Mulariosis paper, if you look, I, I think I made, uh, I, I found some adrenal tissue in the pelvis. And so it's rare. And it's the only one I ever found, but it just says that other tissues can do this, but nowhere near the frequency of endometriosis. You know, it's like endometriosis is, uh, it's a spectacular disease when you think about what it must involve in the human genome among people who have it, its effects on society, driven by a century old theory that makes no sense. What could go wrong? Yeah, I also think now that I'm really thinking about that, well, what you said, I mean, the malarian duct is for reproduction. Reproduction is vital to the it, species. So it makes it, sense yeah. that it would be the malarian duct, if anything, had an issue and not, you know, my eyeball tissue everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, and what, what will the genome say about that? I've actually started looking into, you know, a little bit salmon and spawning and things like that, but I'm not getting anywhere, but you see the similarity. I mean, of all the tissues possible in the human body, you know, where the embryo develops is certainly very important. Mother Nature would certainly want to protect that. I think she's overprotected it though, distributing it far and wide. So Dr. Evan, I wanted to ask you, it's generally accepted that there are three types of endometriosis, superficial endometriosis, ovarian endometriomas, and deep infiltrating endometriosis. Do you think that the theory of malariosis and embryonic origin could explain all three of these types of endometriosis coming to be in the body? Or do you think that there's different causes and factors that play a role in different types of endometriosis? No, no. The malariosis or in, any embryonic theory of origin immediately involves genetics. Once you get genetics involved, not only is anything possible, the other thing is we don't know what's possible. I mean, the future is going to be really dramatic in that way. Endometriomas, that's just, you know, again, endometriosis of the ovary. Well, okay. The ovary uh, forms from the genital ridge, which is right alongside the mullerian duct. And if the mullerian duct ain't migrating properly, you know, what's to keep it from getting over to the genital ridge and kind of insinuating itself into ovarian tissue? Same thing with superficial disease. It's just kind of, that's one of the patterns of endometriosis. Those lesions, the genetics of those individual lesions are such that those lesions are destined perhaps only ever to be superficial. Uh, whereas lesions of areas that have muscle tissue like the uterocycle ligaments, bowel wall, bladder wall, ureter, those areas can have invasive endometriosis with surrounding fibromuscular metaplasia that you don't see very commonly with superficial peritoneal endometriosis. All the forms of endometriosis can uh, cause problems and cause pain, 
So to say that there are three forms, of, you know, I don't think it's helpful to say that there are three forms of endometriosis. I think it's more helpful to say that endometriosis is a genetically dictated uh, disease of patterns that can form disease everywhere in the body, including you know, endometriomas, superficial disease, and deep disease. So, you know, that three types of disease distinction isn't really helpful because all of them can be explained genetically easily. I've seen on Endopedia your information with the pelvic mapping, and it's really fascinating. And I just think it's really interesting and quite a good indicator of embryonic origin that endometriosis has these patterns in the body. Because how else would endometriosis have these patterns? Like, I believe that, for example, endometriosis of the lung is more common on the right side. So why is it that endometriosis in the lung is, you know, on the right side and not the left side? Why isn't it on both sides? Why is endometriosis of the intestine found in four most common locations? Sigmoid colon. Rectosigmoid, ilium, cecum, appendix. appendix. Yeah. So it's just really interesting that endometriosis does have these patterns of. Yeah. 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 Did you see my, uh, one of my recent talks where I talked about even the micro patterns of endometriosis? No, I didn't. Endometriosis is a fairly predictable disease because it's genetically based. And the main genes of endometriosis seem to be acting over and over again from patient to patient because we see the same things at surgery over and over again. Sometimes it's very bad disease. Other times it's superficial disease, but endometriosis follows patterns. It's not a random disease. You know, the posterior pelvis, where endometriosis is most commonly found, that area is involved because that's the pathway of organogenesis during uh, formation of the embryo. It's like the cells sliding across the posterior pelvis, they don't all migrate and differentiate properly. And so they drop off and, okay, this is where I landed. This is where I'm going to form some endometriosis. Another pattern that we see, if you think about the fallopian tube, endometriosis of the fallopian tube, on one side of the fallopian tube is its blood supply called the mesosalpanx. Endometriosis of the fallopian tube most commonly occurs on the anti-mesosalpingeal side. In other words, the side away from the mesosalpane, so-called the leading top edge of, of the tube. That's where tubal endometriosis is most commonly found. Go to the intestines. If here is a, a loop of bowel and here's the you know, momentum to that, patients can have, if there's endometriosis here, there can be little lymph nodes in the mesentery supplying that bowel. Why? It's not because it came from the endometriosis down to the lymph node. It's because that lymph node was patterned during embryogenesis to have endometriosis next to an area of significant bowel involvement. And also when you look at the bowel, just like the fallopian tube, endometriosis is most commonly found on the front surface of the bowel, on the side away from its blood supply. So it's on the anti-mesenteric side of the bowel most commonly, and it's on the anti-mesosalpingeal side of the fallopian tube most commonly. And then when you go into other micro patterns, there can be islands of endometriosis, you know, hidden inside the ovary. No way to really detect that. 
There can be a small endometriosis in lymph nodes that I mentioned earlier. And there can be, you know, little kind of spots of endometriosis all over the peritoneum with no superficial disease. And in the wall of the bowel itself, around areas of large nodular disease, there can be little kind of peppery spots of endometriosis hidden beneath the surface, hidden in the muscle that can't be detected because they're not obvious from the surface. You can see the big nodule, which is taken out, but uh, these little ones uh, may remain. The, the fortunate news is these little ones rarely cause any problem. They've been exposed to the same hormones that the big nodules were exposed to, and yet their genetic potential was muted compared to the big nodule. The big nodule must have been loaded with you know all kinds of tissue genomic uh, messengers to hey, let's form big endometriosis. These other little islands, they just said, well, okay, yeah, we're endometriosis, but we're just sitting here, you know, and that's, that's all they ever do. So those are the patterns that we see with endometriosis, and uh, they're all explainable by embryonic origin of the disease. Now, one question uh, people ask is, does endometriosis involve the lining of the bowel? The answer is not primarily because the lining of the bowel is endoderm and endometriosis is mesoderm and only occurs in mesoderm. The thing is though, the mucosa of the bowel, which is endoderm, if there's endometriosis right here next to it, you know, it can kind of erode into the mucosa, but that's not the same as saying that the mucosa is primarily involved. It's secondarily involved by invasion from an underlying area of endometriosis. So that's just another little minor anatomic example of how precise mulariosis or any embryonic origin theory is. The mucosa of the bowel is endoderm and endometriosis involves mesoderm. So it doesn't primarily involve the mucosa of the bowel or of the urinary tract. One thing that people uh, who are thinking about this might come up with this kind of a question. They say, well, Dr. Edwin, that's all well and good, but you just said that the top layer of the ravioli is ectoderm and that forms the skin and the central nervous system, including the brain. So if the brain is ectoderm, and if you're saying that endometriosis is the meat of the ravioli, the mesoderm, how does cerebral endometriosis occur, endometriosis in the brain? There's a simple answer, but can you fathom a guess? I can, I've thought about this long and hard in the past. It's actually has nothing to do with embryonic origin, it has to do with the retrograde menstruation. And when the womb used to wander the body, at some point, the womb wandered up to the head, got next to the brain, put the backwards flow of blood, left the endometriosis there, then wandered its way back to this proper spot in the abdomen. You know, I'm 100% I'm gonna... convinced that that's how you get endometriosis in the brain. That's a beautiful theory. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Okay, there's a, there's a simpler explanation. Most of our bodies are mesoderm. The heart is mesoderm. The stomach is mesoderm. The lining, the peritoneal lining of the uh, abdominal cavity is mesoderm. Fat is mesoderm. Muscle is mesoderm. Muscle is mesoderm. Muscle is mesoderm. Muscle is mesoderm. What's in the wall of every artery and vein of any size in the body? Muscle. Yes. And so, in other words, mesoderm has literally invaded the endoderm in terms of, you know, the muscle, you know, in the walls of the arteries and veins. And so 
that is the answer to how can a organ that's ectoderm in origin have a, a disease that is strictly mesodermal? And the answer is muscle tissue is everywhere. To me, it makes perfect sense. The more I hear about embryonic origin, the more I am convinced that this is the cause of endometriosis. But I'd love to ask you, there are many people who say that while embryonic origin is one cause of endometriosis, that there are multiple causes and that endometriosis is multifactorial. There could be things like stem cells playing a role, endocrine disruptors or environmental mm -hmm. factors, even retrograde menstruation to a lesser extent, not, not this like backwards flow, but, but having a role. So I'm just wondering, do you believe that embryonic origin is the only? Yes. Cause? Yes. It's the only one. And it's the only one we need. And, you know, a lot of time and money has been wasted trying to chase down a theory for a century. Any new theory that comes up has to be compared against the embryonic origin theory to see if the new theory makes any sense, you know, in terms of, is it worthwhile trying to track that down? Now, I'll refer you back to the Mulleriosis paper. Hidden in there is two forms of origin of endometriosis. One is islands of endometriosis. I demonstrated that, you know, with the photomicrograph. Uh, but the other that I talked about specifically is metaplasia. And I, I used the qualifier, I said, but it has to occur in certain patterns or it has to, you know, occur, I think I said it has to occur in a certain frequency of involvement of the pelvis or you know, something like that. You know, in other words, the patterns, uh, I didn't know enough then to say these are patterns, you know, but over time it's become simpler to say it follows patterns rather than, oh, uh, metaplasias can occur in areas of frequency of involvement, blah, blah, blah. So anyway. Now, what that means is you can have an area of endometriosis, you know, an island of endometriosis, but around it is an area of cells that are capable of undergoing metaplasia. We don't know how far out, you know, those cells extend. You know, it's kind of like the heliosphere of the sun. It extends out beyond Pluto, you know. How far do these, this area of stem cells that were laid down with the endometriosis, how far out do they go? So if you come along and remove the endometriosis, but leave an area of stem cells, you can get superficial local recurrence. If you go deep enough around all the endometriosis and get all the stem cells that are associated with each lesion, then you can have local cure of endometriosis. And so I agree with stem cells. No question, because I mentioned metaplasia, which is basically stem cells changing from one kind of cell into another. And these cells have been called other things in the past. Stem cells is kind of not a new term. They were called totipotential cells in the past, pluripotential cells in the past. In other words, cells that could, you know, the stem cells. So people have known about stem cells forever, literally. And I mentioned it in Mulleriosis, and it's certainly a logical part of a genetic process. You know, when you think of all the genetic gradients that are going on, you know, it boggles the mind, really. So um, other people, you know, the, the people who say, oh, there's many ways. Well, stem cells is not a different way. Stem cells is embryonic origin. They may not know it when they say it. They will eventually realize it. You know, because something's got to tell those stem cells what to do. You know, what's going to do it? 
it's not advertising on television, <laughs> it's genes. And so uh, we get back to you know, the genetics of it all. So stem cells is not new. It's, it's a part of an embryonic origin. I completely and absolutely reject as delusional any reference to Samson's theory. I recall during medical school that when I heard this theory come out of the mouth of a professor at the front of the room, I burst out in laughter, you know, but you know what? I'm not laughing anymore. This theory has outlived its usefulness. And who said it's the most dangerous theory in the history of medicine? Oh, I guess I did, you know, and it's true. I wanted to ask you, I mean, the other thing is environmental factors could make sense because we know that with epigenetics, we can turn genes on and off because of interaction in the environment. I mean, that's the entire science well, of epigenetics. And, um, so. My interpretation of um, estrogen mimics and such is that they seem to be an aggravator of established endometriosis rather than an initiator. Yes, who knows what kind of epigenetic things, you know, might occur with Clorox or, you know, whatever else, you know, they find, but underlying it all is the actual genes, you know, not only their physical characteristics, but some epigenetic things are heritable. And so once you start talking about epigenetics, you are drawn kicking and screaming back to the embryo because epigenetics involves genetics. Genetics, race ipsa loquitur involves the embryo. And so I welcome epigenetics to an embryonic origin. I mean, so when you start, you know, parsing it out, you know, some theories just don't fit, but many of the other ones that people claim are different, they're just, you know, they're, it's like the blind men and the elephant. They, they look at the elephant and think, it's different things. And people are looking at this and that and thinking it's different, but you need to step back and take a kind of a bird's eye view of everything to really get a better context of what's going on. Kind of reminds me of a tree with tree branches. The trunk is embryonic origin. As the branches go up, you have the branches off that are the stem cells and potentially the epigenetics and the environmental interaction with the genes, you know, <laughs> turning them on and off. So yeah, and see, you're, we're always coming back to genetics. Anytime the um, prefix G-E-N hyphen is applied to a word, it implies something embryonic. So when you look at it in that regard, an embryonic origin is quite inclusive. If people would give up their little Turk wars and their little, you know, blind men and the elephant type approach to things. Everything you say makes perfect sense. Every time, you know, you look at a hole in the other theory, you look at a branch and this, it, it's just that it all comes back to it makes perfect sense. The same with the thing that we know endometriosis, you're more likely to have endometriosis if you have a relative with endometriosis. Yeah. And that was a very early genetics of it all. The pedigrees that I was talking about, that, that's all that they used to do in the old days before, you know, they developed DNA techniques and look at pedigrees. So it's obviously much more you know, advanced now. So let's move on to the disease itself and what the disease does when it's present in our body. So Dr. Redwood, what exactly does endometriosis do in the body? It's just sitting there throwing a party, you know, is it bleeding like a period every month, sloughing off and having nowhere to go? What is endometriosis doing exactly? Well, when you look at endometriosis under the microscope, it's a simple tissue. 
uh, it's composed of only two types of cells. Uh, one type is glandular cells, and those glandular cells gather together kind of in a ring and like a bubble and form glands, and uh, they secrete something into the center of this balloon or bubble. Surrounding the glandular cells on the outside of the balloon, so to speak, are stromal cells. We don't know exactly what stromal cells do. They somehow interact with the glandular cells. But in my opinion, the glandular cells are the active component of endometriosis. For the simple matter, for the simple fact that we know that the glands secrete something. The stromal cells are there. We, we're not sure what they do, but we know that the glands secrete something because we can see the secretion. Now, nobody has ever put a little micro pipette into one of those little balloons of endometriosis glands, you know, to suck the tissue out and see what it's made of. My impression, my view of endometriosis is that these glands secrete something that leaches through the tissue, you know, almost like battery acid. And this stuff that leaches through the tissue can reach adjacent capillaries and it can destabilize capillaries over here. And then those capillaries can start to bleed as this glandular tissue, you know, leaches out. It's whatever it's leaching out, it's irritating and it can inflame and irritate nerve endings and cause pain. After time with enough inflammation, uh, scar tissue can start to build up over the glandular tissue. And then you start getting underlying metaplasia going on, fibromuscular metaplasia in areas where muscle is present. And so you can get deep endometriosis. So the main feature that is constant with endometriosis, I consider to be the, the most prominent feature is the presence of these glands. Uh, as you look at endometriosis, the glands can vary in all kinds of ways appearance, you know, and may theoretically vary in what they secrete and how irritating that secretion is. And so um, when you see bleeding, I've kind of made a name for myself by stating the obvious. And I'll state something obvious here. Glands secrete, blood vessels bleed. Endometriosis is glands and stroma. Endometriosis does not have blood vessels. Blood vessels are nearby, but endometriosis does not have blood vessels as part of its microscopic definition. The glands of endometriosis secrete something, but they don't secrete blood. The stromal cells don't secrete anything, and they certainly don't produce blood. So the strict answer to does endometriosis bleed is no, it does not. Beyond that, you can ask, well, does the endometriosis bleed in slough and shed like the landing of the uterus each month? Uh, the answer is no, they do not. Whatever is produced by the glands is leaching out into the tissue. That production of glandular material may change with the menstrual cycle. It may be higher in certain phases and lower in others. This may be associated with an ebb and flow of pain that the patient has, both from irritation of nerve endings in the area, possibly related to adjacent bleeding, possibly related to pinching of an organ, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's the glandular secretions that cause the problems 
you know, they can stick micropipettes into ova. Why don't they stick micropipettes into a gland of endometriosis? It's much larger than an ovum. I, I don't do micropipettery, you know, so we need to examine what the glands secrete because I think that's going to be an important part of pathology. And depending on the genetics that that particular gland received, one gland may secrete uh, kind of a certain type of product. Its next door neighbor may secrete a, you know, a, that same product, but on steroids. And, you know, so when you look at the genetic landscape that's possible, it's not only patterns of disease in the pelvis and micro patterns, but it's also, you know, the cellular functioning, you know, of each area of endometriosis, even in the same pelvis can be different. So the tremendous variation of morphology and histology and biochemistry and hormonal receptors, et cetera, et cetera, that you see with endometriosis can all be easily explained by genetics. We don't know the answers yet to it all. That doesn't mean genetics isn't the answer. And that doesn't mean that embryology isn't, you know, the mechanism of production of endometriosis. It just means we don't know all the answers. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for some genetic golden bullet, excision of endometriosis is going to remain the most effective treatment that we have. Excision will also be important in terms of informing geneticists about the tissue genomics of endometriosis so that it can be kind of related back to the human genome and, like I say, see where all this stuff is coming from. I figured this out 30 years ago. You don't want to take up micro pipetting in your no. retirement? No. Keep solving the mysteries of endometriosis. No, I think we're headed in the right direction. Um, you know, it's clear to me that genetics is going to, you know, take in the stage, which it needs to. And it's clear that genetics is going to lead us, you know, through the embryo and give us a bunch of answers that we, that we don't have. So we're not there yet. There, there are still stragglers who may believe in Samson's theory or try to apologize for other theories. But I think eventually people are going to just be on board with what seems to be pretty obvious, I think, to a lot of people. Finally. Has it been really frustrating to have come to the conclusion that endometriosis has embryonic origins and then see all of this evidence mounting in favor of embryonic origin at the same time watching all of this evidence mounting against Samson's theory? You know, you came up with embryonic origin back in the 1980s. Has it been frustrating to see that the overarching medical community just hasn't caught up with the theory of embryonic origin and just, you know, mm. continues to be stagnant in Samson's theory, which is just clearly not working and additionally not serving the patient because it would be another thing if we're like, well, it's not Samson's theory. I can see it's really not right. Just say it's embryonic. Say it. Say it. Embryonic. It would be one thing if it was like, but the medical treatments that we're giving the patient are working. But the thing is, they're not working. So it'd be one thing if it was like, okay, well, I mean, we don't really know the origin, but it doesn't matter because the things that we're doing are working. But the thing is, what we are doing is not working. So how well, has that been frustrating? Anyone, anyone who would say that the origin of a disease does not matter isn't speaking rationally. Mulariosis, my paper, in fact, opens up with a line, I think, that says, it's important to understand the origin of a disease so it can be treated more effectively. So you just can't reject things, you know, out of hand because you've done it some other way for so long. 
I mean, uh, physicists, they're so quick, and astronomers, they're so quick to adopt, you know, the newest theory when they train all of their telescopes on stars that are hundreds of millions of miles away, you know, and they get quicker changes of paradigms in physics and astronomy than we do in endometriosis. It's just crazy. I mean, are physicists and astronomers just that much smarter than gynecologists? Or are gynecologists just not as smart as physicists you know, and astronomers? And that's why they uh, hold on to the century-old theory, which has no proof. Did I tell you that this theory of reflux menstruation is the most dangerous theory ever in the history of medicine? I did. I'm not okay. sure if you did. No, I think I did. I just, wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to be sure. I think this is a really good time. I was going to do this at the end after we talked about treatment, but I think this is a great lead-in for this next point, and then mm -hmm. we'll circle back to the treatment of endometriosis. I want to read a quote from an article that you wrote in 2003. It was for Gynecology Forum. It says, and I quote, the cards are stacked against people with endometriosis. It's a disease that can only be treated by surgery, but the surgery can be the most difficult in the gynecological repertoire. Surgeons are not sufficiently well-paid to do the surgery, so they have no impetus to learn. As a result, the easy path is taken. Pharmaceutical companies fund studies that paint their drugs in a favorable light, and entire generations of doctors have been swayed by these commercially driven efforts and dutifully prescribe them because that is what everyone else does, and it is also easy. Drug companies are actively working for the day when all people assigned female at birth with pelvic pain are maintained on medicines chronically without a diagnosis or end to therapy. There may be better medical treatments in the future. However, future medical therapies will come to market under the stigma of expense and inefficacy left behind by current medical therapies. It's difficult to imagine that any hormonally-based medical therapy will be highly successful knowing how different endometriosis is from the normally responsive native endometrium. Common sense again. If surgery is the only treatment for endometriosis, then it is a simple matter of choosing the most effective surgery. The most effective surgery is that which has the best chance of consistently eradicating all of the disease. The surgery that can accomplish that end point is excision, whether electric excision, fiber laser excision, CO2 laser, or blunt ovarian cystectomy. This is because excision can remove both superficial and deep disease. Excision proves a pathology report which can increase our understanding of the disease and solidify the basis of scientific study. End quote. So, Whoever wrote that was very wise. That person who wrote that is a genius. And I am so thrilled that he is sitting before me today and we're like face to face in video. And you, has anything changed, you know, since I wrote that? Well, there you go. That was the question. You wrote that almost 20 years ago in, in 2003. And yet ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, they have the wrong definition of endometriosis on their website. And they list endometriosis as the endometrium. And so I'm just wondering, what do you think of that? And do you think that hinders care? And do you want to talk a little bit just about that really excellent, like that quote is just such an excellent summary of what's been happening with endometriosis for decades now. I was on the board of trustees of the 
American Association of Gynecological Laparoscopists in 1994 and 95. In about 1992, on private practice, I became aware of a study from Harvard University by a researcher named William Sao, H-S-I-A-O, I believe, Sao. And this was a study that was commissioned by Medicare to look at every medical procedure, every medical intervention across the board, office visits, whether it's a general practitioner or a surgeon or a gynecologist, you know, operations uh, that were done. And, and in terms of operations, the time spent before surgery, during surgery, after surgery, how risky was the surgery, they would try to get a relative value for every you know, kind of procedure in the CPT codebook at the time. So I sent off for this Harvard study because I realized that if Medicare was doing this study, that it was eventually going to be applied to private insurance companies. And so I got the original study, went through it, and to determine the GYN laparoscopy code values, you know, how many units would this surgery be worth versus how many units would that surgery be worth done laparoscopically? Out of, I don't know, 400 or 500,000 you know, doctors, I don't know how many gynecologists there were. Let's say that at that time, 50 or 60,000 gynecologists in America, I really don't know. They were able to uh, obtain information from, I believe it was 72 gynecologists as to the work that was required both before surgery and during surgery and after surgery for laparoscopic procedures, such as diagnostic laparoscopy or laparoscopic tubal ligation for sterilization, which were really the only laparoscopic procedures in the 1980s when Dr. Sao you know, sampled 72 physicians. So starting with a small and unrepresentative sample, because it's unrepresentative because it didn't capture everything that laparoscopy can do. It captured only diagnostic laparoscopy and tubal ligation, two of the simplest procedures, you know, in the books. And so I saw that, you know, and I said, look, this is a problem because this isn't right. We already know that you can do much more with a laparoscope than those two simple procedures. And so I began to write ACOG at the time. And I said, look, these CPT code values for gynecology uh, are too low. Here's why. It's because only 72 physicians doing simple procedures, you know, replied to Dr. Sao's survey. And so GYN surgery is off on uh, back foot right out the door. Somebody at ACOG wrote back and said, no, you don't have to worry. This is not anything that's going to be applied to private insurance companies. I wrote back and I said, you know, you're wrong. This is going to be applied by private insurance companies because Medicare is the biggest gorilla on the block. And then, you know, this kind of tit for tat letters went up the hierarchy of ACOG until finally the president at the time of ACOG wrote back and said, your continued, you know, strident tone on, on this is not appreciated or well-founded. It deprives from your believability and blah, blah, blah. Please don't bother us anymore. 
that was about 1992. Two years later, you know, when I was on the board, I had Larry, who was in ACOG at the time, come to a board meeting to explain why insurance companies were now adopting, you know, the Medicare CPT values when they had a chance two years ago to do something to protect generations of future patients and future doctors trying to take care of those patients. So we had a chance back in the 19, early 1990s to make a difference. Well, it had already been decided, you know, and what we were told is, well, you know, uh, at first we didn't want to believe Dr. Redwine. That's, that's a common thing I've heard throughout my career. At first we didn't want to believe Dr. Redwine, but we re- later realized that uh, it was true. And it is, it has and will spread to insurance companies and it does represent a problem. We identified it as a problem and we took action to correct that problem. Uh, we went to Medicare and uh, with all of our lawyers and such, and we strode into the room and uh, we were concerned that if we asked for increased codes for both obstetrics and for gynecology, that we might not get either because we seemed greedy. So we decided to ask for higher CPT codes for obstetrics and they let gynecology you know, drift in the wind. So ACOG made a determined decision to demote gynecology to the back of the bus because who can resist a little baby? Well, tell that to somebody hurting from endometriosis. You know, oh, don't worry, ACOG's got your back. The reason obstetricians occurs before gynecologists in its name is because they fought for obstetrics, but not for gynecology. You know, they're their little person, you know, it's okay. A lot of people have menstrual pain and they survive and uh, blah, 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 blah. So, uh, so the problem we have now is clearly and specifically at the doorstep of ACOG. It hasn't changed in 30 years. It will never change. You know, the insurance companies have gynecologists where they want them. Gynecologists are not typically respected very much by other surgeons because they're not, they're considered midwives that, you know, dabble in surgery, which for a lot of them is true because what has happened as the gynecology uh, RB, RBS codes have decreased in value and as reimbursement goes down while everything else goes up, some practitioners they deliver babies so that they can have enough money to practice gynecology almost as a hobby because they don't make money from it. It's impossible to make money, you know, from doing laparoscopic surgery with the way things are. So um, uh, when you have an entire profession, gynecology, subsidized by another profession, obstetrics, that's just not an economic formula for success that will ever work. But that, that's the, the specific origin of that problem. I tried to make a difference at that time. It didn't work. And I said to myself, you know, I, I can't be a part of this system because it doesn't, it doesn't listen to doctors who are trying to, you know, defend for their patients the best kinds of treatment. And so at that point, I just stopped accepting all third-party payers because when you when you sign on for an insurance company, the insurance company is controlling the patient's care and they don't have a medical license. So I didn't want to participate in that kind of a corrupt system. 
Well, it makes sense because you and so many other excision specialists don't accept third-party payers or are not in network with many insurance companies. And there are reasons for that, you know, so that you can give the patient the best care possible and not be dictated by what the insurance, as you said, that they don't have a medical license, what they deem is quote unquote important or quote unquote reimbursable. When I was in practice and I would get involved with an insurance company, they'd say something like, well, the experts don't agree with you. And I say, well, you know what? I am the expert. I'm the world expert on endometriosis. So uh, if they don't agree with me, then there's a problem. They didn't care. They didn't know who I was. They didn't care who I was. They thought I was just some guy claiming to be the world's expert on endometriosis when actually he was a general gynecologist in a small town in Oregon, which he was, but he was also a world's expert. I also think it's really disheartening and heartbreaking that if ACOG in the meeting decided, well, okay, we're going to value obstetrics more than gynecology, you oh, know, babies. well, as you said, it's how can you value one over the other? I mean, both are important, both specialties within obstetrics and Amy, and little, little babies. They got oh. little Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What about, yeah. what about the little baby demons inside of me causing me pain and causing me to writhe and vomit and you know, so that's what's really disappointing is that millions of people were not deemed important enough to fight right. for. You, you, you know, you're you know, you don't matter because you're not pregnant. Well and the funny Loud thing and clear. Well, and the funny thing you say that is when I was given a suspected diagnosis of endometriosis, not by a specialist, but just by a regular gynecologist who finally, after 16 years, could put two and two together. I was Uh, like, oh my God, I think you have endometriosis. So then I wanted to realize I needed a more expert doctor. And so I began calling places. I looked up the name of my city and I looked up endometriosis care, surgery, and I started looking on the internet and calling places. And I'll tell you, I called four different places and no one wanted to see me because I wasn't trying to get pregnant. That was one of the first questions. Oh, the little babies, the little babies, you know, they come out and they're they, they're so cute. Everybody loves little babies. So cute. But yeah. I mean, it's just disappointing. And I, I remember I had like a bit of a breakdown on the phone with the fourth one. And of course, it's not her fault. She's just doing her job. But I started sobbing and I was like, yes, I'm not trying to get pregnant, but I'm in pain every day of my life. What about the people who are just in so much pain? They can barely survive. And I mean, she just, I'm so sorry. And we, we can't treat you. And, you know, the call ended, but that just felt like such a knife in, in my heart that it was. Yeah, so- and I'd like to follow up on that. The provider that you had, that you had this unsatisfactory dealing with. One of the things that I've heard over the years is that female gynecologists will understand uh, another, you know, female patient and be able to empathize and, you know, it'll, it'll all be better and kumbaya and, and all of this. And, you know, I just shake my head, you know, uh, because there's no reason to think that because to understand endometriosis, you have to be affected by it personally. If a physician in training were bothered from junior high school through medical school or internship internship and residency some 12 years by significant pelvic pain that interfered with their life, those people would not be able to stay on the track to become doctors. 
when you look at what happens with the training of a doctor, there are several selection processes that go on throughout someone's academic life. You know, starting in high school, okay, well, you, you work hard, study hard, follow rules, do what you're told so you can get to a good college. Or you study hard, follow rules, do what you're told, you know, work hard uh, so you can get into a medical school. Where you study hard, work hard, follow rules, do what you're told so you can get into an internship and residency. So you can study hard and work hard and follow rules and learn the trade. And so when you get out, you know, of training, you're ready to go uh, into private practice, if that's what you're going to do. You've had two or three characteristics selected for. One, the person who's coming out is typically in pretty good health. Otherwise, they would not have been able to survive what they just went through. And that means without significant endometriosis. Two, they're very book smart. But three, you know, they've been told what to think and what to do for so long that when they get out, they just look around for other somebody else to tell them what to think and what to do. Oh, here's an insurance company over here. They'll tell me what to think and what to do. Oh, here's a hospital over here. They'll tell me what to think and what to do. You know, and uh, oh, here's the drug company advertisement. They'll tell me what to think and what to do. And so uh, it, it's, it's like the medical schools are producing cannon fodder for insurance companies, hospitals, and third-party payers. It's just, and when you think about kind of the nature of it, where a fully trained doctor can't do what's best for the patient, it just becomes a kind of a evil form of societal suppression that you know has real consequences. So I think that's a big problem is that a lot of doctors come out and they're too conservative because who are they to question Hippocrates? Who are they to question Galen? Who are they to question Samson? Well, hey, I'll question every one of those guys because I know more about medicine than any of them. You know, there are many layers of problems uh, with endometriosis and they have been present for decades. Each has its own little story of origin, but underlying it all is this delusion about Samson's theory and the delusion that medical therapy is going to make a difference and lack of payment for what really works. Lupron and or or, or Alyssa, you know, what do they cost? I mean, eight or ten thousand dollars for six months or whatever, and they don't do anything. Well, I propose that we take that eight or ten thousand dollars that would be paid for Lupron or Oralissa and give it to the surgeon, you know, because that would give the surgeon certainly much more money than what they're making now. That amount of money is would be too little for some of the surgeries that we do. The longest surgery I ever did was 12 and a half hours. I can't remember what I charged, but you do what needs to be done. But at the end of the day, you have to keep your dignity All right, everyone. So we're going to leave off here today because we have so much more to cover. We want to thank Dr. Redwine for so generously giving us his time and speaking with us today. We'll be back to continue this conversation with him next week in part two, so definitely don't miss that. We've also linked Dr. Redwine's website, endopedia.info, and his books in the show notes today, so please take a look. All right. See you next week. 